0: Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork Podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimise your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and my guest this week is Dr. Kenneth Palettio. He is the author of a brilliant book that I've just finished called Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. It's just informed me that it's gone for its second reprint. It's an Amazon bestseller. They're currently sold out of the first print. So huge success. And we're going to pull out some of the key points from the book and talk about them in this upcoming podcast. But a bit more about my guest. He is the clinical professor of medicine at the University of California School of Medicine. He's the director of Corporate Health Improvement Programme which is a research program linked with around 15 Fortune 500 companies, including Ford, Oracle, Prudential, and PepsiCo, and a number of other big names. He's also a medical and a business consultant to the World Health Organization and other major corporations such as Cisco, IBM, American Airlines, Disney, and a load of other really big names. He sits on the board of the American Institute of Stress. He's a founding member of the American Board of Integrative Medicine, and he's been featured on huge U.S. news channels like ABC News, the Today program here in the UK, Good Morning America, CBS, 48 Hours, CNN, Fox News, and to bring it back to London, where this has been recorded, an award-winning BBC series as well. So he's also the author of Mind as Heal and Mind as Slayer, a book called Holistic Medicine, another book called Sound Mind, Sound Body. And amongst all of that, he somewhere finds time to sail, which I think is your passion. Dr. Paletti. welcome to the show.
1: Sailing is indeed, my passion. Thank you for the invitation to be here.
0: (laughs) When do you fit that in?
1: (laughs) When I'm in the U.S., fairly often. I live right on the ocean in Carmel, which is south of San Francisco. So it's a, a marine sanctuary and it's just absolutely wonderful sailing.
0: Wow. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Okay, so we've got a huge amount that I would like to cover. Let's see what we can do justice to. Are you happy for me to call you Ken?
1: Oh, absolutely. Please. Thank you. Yep.
0: Okay. All right, Ken, let's start with genetics. I mean, what do we know today? What is our latest understanding?
1: Well, probably the biggest misunderstanding in the general public, but also for medical professionals, health professionals, is that genetics are like the hard drive in your computer. It's a set of invariant directives, codes, instructions that are carried out mindlessly throughout the course of your life expectancy from birth to death. And that's a common misconception. And in the last seven to eight years, what we've realized is that is completely wrong, that less than 5% of any aspect of a human being, from eye color to weight to cognition to intelligence to diseases we will get, is actually ingrained in the genetic code from the time of birth. Everything after the 5%, in other words, 95% of everything we experience as adults is due to epigenetic factors or factors above or beyond around the gene itself.
0: Mm-hmm. And what else do we, we know to be true about genetics? So you've kind of busted one of the first myths about it.
1: Well, there are certain diseases that have a strong genetic push. And I use the term push very precisely because it's a push. You have the genes do not change. My book title is a kind of a gotcha title. I deliberately said change your genes because that in fact is not possible. Genes are invariant unless they're damaged by radiation or petrochemical exposure, which raises the issue of insecticide exposure, petrochemical exposure, air pollution, etc. But the gene itself is invariant. What does change, and we do know this about genetics, is there is a sheath or a coating, a molecular coating around the gene. It's called a single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. Mm -hmm. And the SNPs are like little rheostats. And they turn on or turn off. They express or suppress a particular gene based again on everything that happens around that gene. So you may have a predisposition to a particular disease, ALS, to irritable bowel, to heart disease, but whether or not that particular gene gets expressed, turned on, turned up, is going to be dependent on everything you do from the moment of birth on. So if most genetic or what they call monogenic or fully penetrant diseases that are pushed to the extent where if you have that gene, you're going to manifest that disease, occurs within the first eight to nine months of life. After that, everything else is epigenetic or interactive. So the epigenetics of the gene revolution is more like an interactive artificial intelligence we are constantly interacting with our environment everything we do and everything around us to in turn express or suppress a particular gene
0: Mm -hmm. so what we used to think that genes were you had what you had and that was it it was a fair complete that that you were your genetic destiny and Over the last few years, what we've realized is that isn't true. What you're saying is epigenetics. In other words, the impact that the environment has on our gene expression has far more say about what happens than just our genetic expression. Is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's a very articulate statement. In fact, in my book, I have a statement from James Watson of the Watson and Crick, two individuals who discovered the structure of the DNA in 1954. And James Watson was the first person about five years ago to have his human genome completely mapped. So it was the complete unfolding of his human genome. And he has a statement that he made in a lecture, where if he brought that to his family doctor, that he or she would know 1% to 3% more about his health or illness than they would from a good physical. 1% to 3% more. Now, that's astounding. So even James Watson, the founder of the structure of the DNA, is acknowledging that the DNA code is variate. It is not and an various set of instructions. It's a highly variable, highly malleable, interactive set of artificial intelligence that expresses itself throughout our life.
0: And this is, is why I find so interesting about all this, because we can now quite reasonably do DNA testing to look at our ancestry, for example, or health markers or fitness-related markers. So we can get a fairly good picture of what our genes tell us, which I suppose in part can inform what you then do with that information. Do you use that to shape the way that you change your diet or the type of exercise you do? How useful is it, do you think, in that regard? And how far along the line of really understanding it are we?
1: That's a very uh, good difficult question. Let me me try to respond. There are two basic uses of the same genetic technology. One is the pointing the bone or the prediction of likelihood of disease. So you take a genetic test and it says you've got a 40% chance of disease X or a 90% chance of disease Y. So it's a disease prediction model. I object to that model. And most of what we find in the market, if you will, is the, the pointing the bone, deterministic, biological reductionism model because it's based on statistics. It simply says If you have a 30% likelihood of getting a particular disease, it means that everybody else with the same genetic predisposition has a 30% likelihood. So what does that tell you? And even more importantly, it doesn't tell you what you can do to be in the 70% with the same markers Mm. that do not manifest that disease. So that's the biological determinism, use of genetic testing. The other is really the area of healthy biomarkers. And I think that's what you're referring to, Mm. which is there is very good genetic blood and biomic testing that will tell you a particular range of a biomarker. So everyone is familiar with cholesterol. So it's like every function in the body has a biomarker, like a cholesterol level. And the biomarker approach simply tells you, here is your value. Is it above or below an optimal range? If it's above, it may indicate a particular condition. If it's below, it may indicate a risk. But if it's in the optimal range, that's what you want. And here are the steps that you can take. Here's how you can influence that biomarker and move it into an optimal range. So when we do that with individuals, and we do that with my patients and other people that we work with, what you can do is give them enough information on enough of these biomarkers to say, here's the optimization of all of these biomarkers that ensure that you are on the optimal trajectory for health and longevity. And that's to me a very kind of good news message because it mm. empowers individuals with choice and it's very specific, very, very specific. And the tests are getting better and better. In the next year or two, we'll see tests that are even better than the ones we have now.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really exciting time, I think, to be in this industry and for the consumer as well. The amount of information that's going to become available at a relatively reasonable price, as you say, it's going to get better and better. I want to touch on something. You talked about the deterministic model. And in the book, you quote the example of Angelina Jolie. Could you just talk us through that, that example you gave and what your points were there?
1: Right. Well, just as I was Beginning to write the book, actually, Angelina Jolie had genetic testing that indicated a positive for BRCA1, BRCA2, which are the two predisposing genetic risks for breast cancer. She had a high familial risk from her mother, and I think the BRCA1, BRCA2 gave her an 80% likelihood of manifesting breast cancer within her lifetime. And she decided at that point to undergo a double mastectomy. And that may very well be a good choice for her. However, there were other optional approaches she could have taken, such as periodic mammography or thermography monitoring to be sure that, in fact, breast cancer did not become manifest. She could have taken some of the chemoprophylactic drugs like tamoxifen, which would have reduced her risk. There are a number of things she could have done in terms of dietary changes, exercise, stress management that, again, would have reduced. The likelihood of the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes becoming expressed. And I didn't criticize her decision. What concerned me, I thought it was a very bad precedent for women throughout the world. Subsequent to the surgery, I think she had a, it was either a two hundred and fifty dollars or $300,000 breast reconstruction, yeah. which in her case is understandable, but n- not every woman in the world can afford two hundred and fifty dollars or $300,000. For breast reconstruction. So I thought it was a bad lesson. I thought it was an inappropriately thought through precedent that was widely disseminated and widely praised for her courage. And, and I agree, it was a courageous decision on her part. And again, I'm not criticizing her decision. I just thought it sent out a very bad precedent, very bad message for women of the world.
0: Yeah, I guess what it does back up is the idea that your genes are your destiny. And We've got that very high risk, and it reduces or takes away the idea that actually you can do something about this. And that's something I very much believe in. You know, there's a, we can do a lot to change the expression of our genes. We can do a lot to mitigate the risk of illness. We should feel powerful in that regard. We shouldn't feel that it's a fair complete that we're going to get these things or that we're at serious risk. And then it, you know, there's one reason why we don't do within my business body shop. We don't use the the 23 me test for disease risk. Because I I don't really want to sit and have a conversation with somebody about, you know, your increased risk of Alzheimer's and cystic fibrosis, because that's what your genes are telling us. Because actually, if we're talking about Alzheimer's, we know that lifestyle, diet, and exercise specifically can be very positive for reducing or mitigating your risks of Alzheimer's. So why don't we just do that anyway? And you can live in peace, not knowing whether or not you've got the genes that predispose you to it or not. So I'm really into giving the individual, and I sense that you are as well, as much power as possible And for some people, that might mean not doing genetic testing because, you know, ignorance is bliss in a way, but still doing all the things that we know are good for health and longevity.
1: Yeah, I actually, uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. And to use Alzheimer's as an instance, there are genetic markers for Alzheimer's. And 23andMe does, in fact, identify some of those markers, as well as nine other common conditions that do have strong genetic markers. But again it is not a certainty. And and I really emphasize that if someone takes a test, there are about 10 or 15 vendors that are doing various forms of genetic deterministic testing that give you probabilities. Is again, to remember it's a probability, does not have to do with you. And there's a great deal that you can do even if you have that likelihood. And we have new monitoring technologies. So, The blood assays for blood and the genetic testing is becoming much less invasive, much less inexpensive. So we can monitor how what we are doing is modifying that risk over time. So it's not a one-time snapshot. In other words, your genetic profile today would be totally different next week. It'll be radically different in a month. <clears throat> in a year, you won't look like the same person. So this is an ongoing, evolving system. The human being, we as human beings are dynamic, evolving changing day-to-day, minute-to-minute, that's what the best use of these genetic assays tells us, which is we can modify these steps as we go forward with our life. And that's, to me, the most empowering message of all.
0: Yeah, I agree. There's a company here in London called Chronomics. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. And what they're doing is they do DNA testing every, I think it's every six months. Our business partner's actually on the program and you can map out or, or view the changes on your genes of the changes in environment and lifestyle that have gone on in those six-month blocks, which is exactly what you're saying, I think. And it's quite early stages for their technology, but it's, it's really interesting. So let's say I, I did a test now and then I moved from South London, where I live, to the countryside. What would be the positive or slightly negative effects of, of the change in environment and locality and maybe pace of life and everything else on my genes?
1: the likelihood is huge. Yeah. (laughs) Unless, of
0: course, I got out there. And even though I'm breathing fresh air and going for country walks, I'm lonely.
1: It would be enormous. I mean, we know that air pollution is linked to heart disease. It's linked to the actual onset of a heart attack, that the lack of physical movement improves rather than aggravates arthritic disorders, that diet radically modifies irritable bowel syndrome. So all of these conditions, if we're outside, if we're eating, again, organic foods, if we're in relatively clean environments, all of that has a direct impact on the gene. If you think about the gene inside a cell, it's in an ocean of biochemistry. That biochemistry within the cell is affected by the entire biochemistry of our body. And that biochemistry and the biome, the intestinal tract, is constantly changing, literally second by second, minute by minute. So in six-month intervals, you're going to have radical changes. And again, if you see those changes, and, and we're, our research here has focused on what we're calling a tripartite assay, and it consists of genetic markers and then blood markers, which is the genes are a push. The blood markers say, okay, here's how it's showing up in your blood and your body chemistry and the third is the biome or the intestinal tract and you see basically here's the aftermath here is how that push in your blood has affected your brain your central nervous system and your organs and here's the byproduct when you have those three markers then you can really give a person very specific information about their health risks And what they're doing or not doing, that's enhancing their health and and longevity.
0: Mm. And interesting, That's, that's exactly what we do. We add a fourth piece on with what we do for clients, which is we fit them with wearable technology that allows them to track and monitor changes. And for example, with sleep and activity and their recovery levels. But we also look at blood. We look at the gut or the microbiome. And we look at DNA, for certain markers anyway, for certain genes. I want to just come back to, you touched on some of the environmental factors involved in epigenetics. And epigenetics, again, is is the impact that the environment has in all its different forms on our gene expression. What are some of the psychosocial factors that you mention in the book?
1: Well, one of the clearest psychosocial factors is stress. Stress has essentially two forms. Again, a little bit of background, but we step back and we look at stress, you find that there are two basic types. There's a type one, which is short-term, when the source of stress is immediate, identifiable, and resolvable. So if you think about it, that's a lot of what happens to us day by day. If you step off a curb and a car hogs its horn, you jump back on the curb, you save your life. So that form of stress, it, it's immediate, you identify the threat, you take an action, it's resolved. That form is not pleasant, but it's positive. That form of stress is not negative. We owe our survival as a species to that that stress. The second is a type 2 stress. It's very different. It's when the source of stress is not immediate, not identifiable, and not necessarily resolvable. And again, if you think about our day-to-day activity, that may be a financial concern. It might be a conflict with a business partner, a worry about a child or a parent. In other words, something that is vague, not resolvable, indefinite, and prolonged. Mm -hmm. When we have that kind of, of stress response, then the normal response is protracted. So it becomes either a precondition for a worse condition, or it becomes a condition in and of itself. So a transient increase in blood pressure becomes labile hypertension over time. If it's not corrected, it becomes fixed hypertension, malignant hypertension, major risk factor for heart disease. So that's the negative. Now, what we know is that stress management techniques, meditation, relaxation techniques have a direct impact on altering a type 2 stress response converting it into these shorter type 1 intervals that were built to manage. We can take those forever. I mean, we're organismically set up to do that, and there is some very good research. For instance, there's a study that was conducted at Harvard which divided people into a group of meditators and non-meditators, followed them over a period of 12 weeks, and looked at genetic expression from baseline to 12 weeks later. And what they found, predictably, the genetic markers of the control group that was not meditating, they were doing a general relaxation, in fact, didn't change. But what they found was the people that were involved in the meditation, that their genetic markers were all improved. So inflammation declined, lipid metabolism improved. So all of these genetic markers that indicated to them they were getting healthier all indicated an improvement. They even found that the telomere or the indication of life expectancy actually improved, the telomere lengthened, et cetera. So they actually, in 12 weeks, had lengthened their life expectancy, who knows how long, but it did have a very positive effect. So we know that stress is one of the highly predictable, very modifiable influences that has a direct impact on genetic expression that's fascinating
0: for a lot of people listening stress will be a big thing for them what else can they do aside from meditation what are some of the other more parasympathetic promoting things that people can do that still have that impact on genetic expression
1: Right. Well, in California, a number of years ago, we actually conducted a study at the first time that Jerry Brown was governor of California, so it was quite a long time ago. But we conducted a study and then subsequently an intervention that was distributed throughout the state of California when there was a Department of Prevention in the state, well, friends can be good medicine. And it was based on the observation, Dr. Len Simon, UC Berkeley, that the impact of friendship, of having close relationship, even a close relationship, has a profound influence, again, on heart disease, longevity, things as minor colds and flus, falls, fractures, intellectual decline, that when you have one person or a collection of friends that basically provide a support network, that has a huge impact. And what we see with genetics Again, if you have a friend, you find that the genetic expression of inflammation is reduced within a normal range. So that's critical. Now, there was even a study a number of years ago, again, out of Harvard that I thought was fascinating that found it doesn't have to be a person, it could be a plant. And in this particular study, the researchers went into a long-term care facility in Boston and they gave each of the long-term care residents a plant. One simple plant in a pot. And they said to half of them, this is your plant, but don't worry about it. Just tell the nurse when to water it, turn it in the light, whatever, but it's your plant. So the second group, they said, this is your plant, but you have to take care of it. You have to water it, put it in the light, feed it. Basically, you need to take care of it. So they call one group the plant passive group, the other group the plant active group. Hmm. They came back, six months later, and they found three remarkable things. The plant active group all had decreased incidence of diseases, heart attacks, emergency incidents over the course of the six months. Secondly, they found that voluntary weekly attendance at a movie was increased among the people who actively took care of the plants. And the other was that they found that the life expectancy of people in the plant active group was extended more than the people in the plant passive group. Hmm. So that even a simple little necessity of caring for a plant obviously altered the people's biochemistry, the psychosocial factors, the interaction with a plant had a profound impact. So these are very subtle. It can be a pet, it can be a plant, it can certainly be friends, but these are, again, some of these intangible easy to create in our lives influences on our our genetic expression.
0: Fascinating. So what was that down to? Was it down to the expression of hormones like oxytocin, serotonin, and so on, or...?
1: The two particular studies I just cited, the meditation study and the long-term care study, they did not measure those particular hormonal levels, although other studies have looked at oxytocin, have looked at hormonal output, and what you find, again, with stress management is you have a profound and direct impact. So the type 2 stress that we talked about, in all of those instances, oxytocin is suppressed, the hormone imbalances are indeed profound, you find a higher output of adrenal corticotrophical hormones, of cortisol, all of these stress-related hormones are increased. And that state in a body is catabolic or energy burning. When we're under stress, your body prepares to fight or flee, run or engage in combat. And that requires energy. And that energy is in the form of consuming our body produce energy or catabolic function. So in the type two, you have this catabolic destructive changes affecting all the hormones that you just cited. And when we enter into a relaxation through meditation, biofeedback, yoga, Pilates, any number of interventions, we have an anabolic or a reconstructive process that occurs in the body. So you're rebuilding or regenerating every cell, every organ in your body as you engage in these activities.
0: And I suppose they have, it was what you alluded to earlier, they'll have a positive effect on blood pressure, on heart rate, which in turn will create feelings of, of feeling good and reduce your disease risk and so on. So yeah, interesting. Before we move on from epigenetics, I want to just talk about specifically about pregnancy because I think one of the most underappreciated things when women get pregnant amongst the parents is the impact of environment and the psychosocial factors that you've mentioned on the child itself. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. And basic biological fact, uh, the fetus is an integral part of the mother's body. The fetus is essentially another organ of the mother. And the intrauterine life of that fetus is affected by everything the mother does. So all of the influences we've been talking about, stress, environment, and in particular, diet has a huge impact. If there's one area that we know has the largest impact on genetic expression, it's diet. It affects all seven biological pathways in the the body. And with the fetus, Everything the mother does, whether she smokes or drinks or is in a you know, toxic environment or highly stressful, not exercising, not eating correctly, all of that is literally and directly transmitted to the fetus and affects the genetic expression. So a child who emerges, an obvious example is if a mother is addicted to a cocaine or addicted to an amphetamine that child, that baby, will in fact emerge from the womb amphetamine and opioid addicted and will go through withdrawals and will go through the need to actually engage in a detoxification program. Now, that's an extreme example, but it simply shows us how delicate and susceptible the genetic expression is of that child, of that fetus. So Mm. it's really critical to remember that this is a symbiotic, relationship. And our epigenetic expression begins intrauterine. (laughs) It's not just postnatal, it's intrauterine. And some of those become manifest over time as we age and grow older, but it begins again intrauterine.
0: Mm. I'm thinking of two things, actually. One is the adverse childhood study, which looked at a number of males And then correlated how likely they were or what their increased risk of mortality was, but their increased risk of cardiovascular disease and things like that, based on their childhood experiences that potentially had changed their gene expression. And the other one I'm thinking about is the Dutch famine study, which you do talk about in the book, which, you know, could you just explain or either elaborate on the adverse childhood experience study or or talk a bit about the Dutch famine or both?
1: Well, one of the things that we find is that genetic influences do directly impact the child. And the Dutch study that you just cited demonstrated that basically the deprivation, starvation had a profound impact on the child's health from that point going forward after birth. And the other factor that we know of is these influences can actually skip generations. So that's a whole new area of research called transgenerational genetics. And what it means is that a factor that is an influence in your grandparents' life may not show up in your parents' life, but will show up in you, or the grandparents' predisposition will show up in the grandchild, not necessarily in the child. And one, this was discovered looking at the survivors of Nazi concentration camps. What they found is that the offspring of the survivors did not necessarily have a higher than normal predisposition to stress reactivity as expressed by inflammation and other like cortisol biomarkers. What they did find is the grandchildren had a higher predisposition to hyperreactivity to stress. Mm. So that was an astounding finding. A more recent study, this was just published about three or four months ago, looked at three generations of Irish families in Dublin, and they looked at the waist circumference of the grandmother. And did that predict the likelihood of a greater waist circumference, i.e. predisposition to obesity in her child, or female child? And the answer to that was no. But much to their surprise, what they found is it did predict the waist circumference and predisposition to obesity in the female grandchild. So that's astounding. How that occurs, no one knows, hmm. but it it does raise the specter that Epigenetic influences are the gift that goes on giving. We don't know how it's expressed. We don't know its mode of transmission. But we do know that it's kind of an alert. It's a, a flashing yellow light that says you need to pay attention to this no matter which generation you're in of at least these three levels of relationships.
0: Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshot performance.com and click on take the test it'll take you through to a short two to three minutes test and at the end of that you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals sleep mental health energy body composition digestion and fitness and if you've enjoyed this episode please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them and of course don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review thank you very much for listening